This is Network, a podcast from Dot Everyone. We're an organisation fighting for a fairer internet. This podcast is about its promise. I think we're actually on the cusp of something exhilarating and terrifying. Its problems. We're getting used to a new way of being alone together. And how we can make the internet fairer for everyone. I'm Martha Lane Fox, the founder and executive chair of Dot Everyone. And on this episode of Network, we'll be talking about care. Each of us, I hope, will be cared for at some point in our lives, and many of us will take on the responsibility to care for someone else, sometimes many other people. I'd like to find out if technology is changing this relationship with care. Are we building tools that can help us in our caring responsibilities? Or are we disconnecting people because we're using so many more of those technologies? At Dot Everyone, we're fighting for a fairer internet. And in this episode, we're talking to three women who've been thinking about the impact of technology on this vital area of our lives. First, I wanted to talk to someone who's really managed to shake things up and get the debate going. Anne-Marie Slaughter is now CEO of New America, a think tank renewing America in the digital age. She's also a former professor at Princeton University and was director of policy planning at the US State Department, the first woman to hold that position. I had long thought, like many women of my generation who wanted to pursue a career and have a family at the same time, I I thought a lot about how you juggle it or balance it or whatever verb you choose. But I'd also assumed the it could be done, that that it was a matter of wanting it enough uh, and staying up late enough and being organized enough. And when when I realized I had to make a what I think of as a choice for care, in other words, a choice to be with someone who really needed me, our, our, our son, over a particular career goal, it challenged my assumptions in a way that then made me think about all the women who didn't have all the advantages I did and to wonder how on earth we could create a an infrastructure that would allow them to to be able to pursue work and and family and then led to a three-year journey of rethinking the entire issue away from uh discrimination and and kind of just opening up opportunities for working women to really thinking hard about care and do you feel as though the debate has moved on I'm very encouraged, indeed, even in a time of parlous and difficult politics, I'm very encouraged that the care frame is taking hold in many ways. Not everyone uses that word, but we are seeing more and more attention to things like the arc of career. There was a wonderful article recently about how older women are working longer because they ramp up after their their children have left or paid leave and paid leave for fathers and elder care because we focus always on children, but taking care of our parents is every bit as, as important. So I do think I'm seeing a shift to looking at the economic implications of having so many people uh, not able to work fully because they have care obligations and also moral and social support for care. And do you think that that is true beyond the, um, you know, 
privileged and most boisterous voices, if you like. I think that um, often unfairly, Sheryl Sandberg, who came out after you, also talking about some of the issues facing women that perhaps hadn't been spoken about in quite such high-profile way, gets a, a bit of um, uh, noise thrown at her because feels as though coming from such a privileged place. Do you think that the debate has really reached the places that it needs to? Not enough. I still do think, uh, particularly in the United States, uh, perhaps more than in, in Britain, but certainly in the United States, this wave of feminism, second wave feminism from 1960 onward, still is much more an elite discussion, uh, a conversation among primarily white women who have choices. Uh, I will put it put it that way. But again, I think what you're starting to see in the United States are conversations about support for working families. Now, on the one hand, you think, well, that looks very different than Lean In or even uh, other, my own work, other women who've written about their own experiences. On the other hand, that's really what we're talking about. Support for working families mm -hmm. means child care, elder care, early education, uh, support for when someone is sick or disabled, so that that frame, which you see more of in the United States, you also see uh, somebody like Ai-jen Poo, who works with immigrant women, largely immigrant women, who are home health care workers or, or nannies. Uh, that conversation is picking up. So I think there's more attention being paid to all women. I, I don't think that the, the two kind of conversation have come together enough as I, as I think they would if we just said, let's build an infrastructure of care. And you've talked, uh, you know, eloquently about how the notion of care has never been valued, not economically and, and maybe not even kind of individually. Do you think that a lot of this has got to come back to people putting a kind of economic value on it and having a, a rigorous framework by which care becomes like a profession, if you like? That will certainly help. Uh, I am doing quite a lot of work at the moment on the future of work, as many of us are. We're yeah. looking at artificial intelligence. We're looking. We're we're realizing that, in terms of the impact of the digital revolution, uh, we're at about 1830 in the industrial revolution, where <laughs> the steam engine's been invented, other technologies have been invented, but the social disruption is just beginning, and that's true in the digital revolution. But what you see if you look at the jobs that are both increasing now and that have the greatest potential, many of them are teaching jobs because education will be lifelong. So from early ed forward, advising jobs, coaching jobs. Uh, we think about life coaching and executive coaching, but more broadly, uh, the ability to help others reach their fullest potential the way an athlete does. You have athletes have entire teams of people <laughs> who invest in them. Those jobs are increasing and they will be more professionalized. Indeed, in the United States, there's even a movement to help professionalize foster parenting because it's so important for those mm. children and thus for our future. So I think putting the economic value on it will help. I do, though, also think we need the moral corrective to the 
current obsession with money. There's always an obsession with money, but I do think we've swung particularly far in that direction in the last couple of decades. And you're starting to see millennials push back where they say, look, I want a quality of life. I want to be able to be there for my family. I want to invest in others uh, and be rewarded for it. So the economics will probably be the biggest driver, but I, I think we need and I think I see a moral component as well. So how do you talked also, I know, about bringing men into the conversation and that you know, paid parental leave and seeing people as a carer rather than a daughter or a son or whatever is as important. How, how do you think, what are the kind of more practical policy-led things that you can do to involve men in the conversation? Well, you can do a number of things just around our vocabulary. I always tell people Mm -hmm. to stop talking about working mothers. Uh, Or if you talk about working mothers, then every time you talk about a man who has a job and children, you must call him a working father, which is the vast majority of the male workforce. Uh, So thinking about it in non-gender terms, and and we, we as women tend still to think this is more our domain and not uh, our partner's domain or our son's domain, uh, depending where, where you are. So part of it is to just think, wait a minute, care is as much for men as earning an income is for women. And that's a radical shift that we just are just at the outset of. But I think you all... Uh, can really enlist individual men, groups of men, so that you have parent discussions in workplaces or even caregiver discussions where you you recognize there are many men who, if, if you can just give them the space and the legitimation, actually want to be part of this conversation because they don't like the way they work either. And they have long felt that they really didn't have a choice about having to go to the office and do what they have to do because their job is to be at least the a breadwinner, maybe mm-hmm. not no longer the breadwinner, but a breadwinner. So I think there are many ways we can enlist men. Younger men in particular are often saying they want, why should their partner, sometimes another man, but or, or a woman, have the relationship, have such a close relationship with the family members that they it's can't have. Considering, Why can't you, you know, both have both? Everyone's focus around the internet and internet-enabled technologies and how this impacts because, you know, like you hear a lot, well, you know, the robots are going to do all of this stuff and then we're going to create <laughs> another problem of care because we're not going to look after people as well. But I actually see the opposite. I think that, uh, you know, robots won't be able to do a lot of this stuff. Therefore, these jobs will become even more valued and important. I agree with you. And actually, what's most interesting is where you put the two together. So think about even just home health aid. So the robot may lift some an older person out of bed into a bath, all those things. That's good because that hurts people's backs. Yeah. <laughs> That's, that would be, but that then allows the caregiver to focus much more on the human interaction that the robot's not going to be able to do. Or the robot may have, you know, kind of games to k- increase your mental agility but you'll still need a human there helping, advising, just as in higher education, you can use big data to know how a particular student's doing, but you still need an advisor to act on that data and create that human relationship. So it's the hybrid models that you think yes. are going to be there. But it's interesting, isn't it, even that care is still lumped together between care for older relations and younger children and when you talk, you know, big, an enlightened company, wouldn't it, that said, actually, we're going to let you have time to be able to look after your 
dying mother or father as much as we're going to give you parental leave when you've just had a child. I wonder whether or not that's a, a future that we could imagine. Well, I, I think so. They're out of pure self-interest. As my yeah. my generation, I'm the height of the baby boom. I was born in 1958, which is the year that the baby boom peaked. So I am, you know, I'm not yet 60, but as my cohort advances and the early, older baby mm-hmm. boomers, of course, are already there, it's going to be us <laughs> that yeah. needs taken care of. And we have a remarkable way, and my generation has all along, that what we're such a big demographic that what we need suddenly becomes much more important. Uh, and so I do think uh, people will see this as self-interest. But I also think, and this goes back to the economy, and frankly, it also goes back to what digitally enabled ways of working. Um, care is investing in others. You know, we think of it as the physical, but that's really what care is. When you care for somebody else, you can do that, you know, as a manager, you can do that as a teacher, you can do that as a coach. So it's this whole human area of the economy. And, you know, if you put that together with the fact that really in a digital age, it's the rare job that can't be done at least partly at home. And that even includes shopping, because shopping now, of course, is often online, and you're often talking to someone online if you if you need help. That flexibility plus artificial intelligence and mm-hmm. robots leaves us a tremendous space for investing in other human beings uh, and helping them reach their potential and reaching our own really sa- – reaching a kind of tremendous satisfaction ourselves in the process. I jumped away from technology. My mind got uh, excited by the prospect of old and young. But I, <laughs> I would like to go back to that because you make a really interesting point about uh, the, that conflation between the digital and the real. But I also want to challenge a bit that, you know, if we're looking for um, clever digital solutions to some of this stuff and we're looking for the right role for the robot, not the wrong, but beyond robots, you know, apps or new platforms or whatever they might be one of the things that concerns me very much is that as you know 96 percent of the world's software engineers are men they're just not part of the design process from the experience you've got a mismatch you've got the caregivers who are women and you've got the people designing the brave new world who are men how can we bridge those divides that divide we need so there's a wonderful uh, organization in California called Mother Coders. Yes, that is out right. there teaching mothers to code, and uh, not just mothers, of course, women and and people of color. And if if the internet is where we live a good part of our lives, then the people shaping the internet, and that's everything from the, you know, how many people are connected and who is connected to the software we use, has to reflect. Uh, the population. It it is uh, otherwise we we really are living in houses in a way or structures that are divide, uh, designed by a particular cohort of men uh, who live a very particular way and have no ability to imagine beyond that. And we've all heard the stories of, of, you know, Siri couldn't tell you what to do if you were raped, but she could tell you, you know, how to win the latest video game. Uh, So I do think, but, but here, so much of this is uh, demystifying what coding is, I often say to people, look, it's just another language. Mm. And particularly for women who are often math phobic, even though they shouldn't be, still, we have these stereotypes. Mm. Uh, if you tell a, a, a girl, look, you know, 
a computer career requires you to be good in math and science, she may have one reaction. If you tell her it requires her to be good in language, she may have a very different one. And so we have to open up these careers as, you know, this is simply where you live and the skills you need are no different than the kinds of skills you need in the physical world, e.g. the ability to cross cultural boundaries, to speak other languages, to imagine how other people think. And you don't think it's too late? I don't. I, and again, I think we are very early on. It's hard for us to to believe that because we've gone through so much change. But again, um, if you go back to the beginning of the Industrial Revolution and you realize it took decades, almost a century, to move away from agrarian cottage industry lifestyles to office and factory lifestyles and all the changes that went with that and all the careers that were created that never existed before, we're still early on. Uh, I do think it's imperative that we spread the word and that we actively reach out, as I said, to mother coders, to uh, every single community right now that, that is disconnected, not just from the internet itself, but from those careers, we have to work hard, as I know you are, uh, to to bring those people uh, into so if you had the, a billion dollars, the living where would space be your first of place of investment? My first place of investment on the care side would be paid family leave. And I, you note, it's not maternity leave, paternity leave. It would be paid family leave. It yeah. would be a scheme probably through social insurance where everyone had a budget of paid time, everyone, men and women, to, who, who, that they could use to care for anybody, any other one, <laughs> you know, whether it's parents or children or spouses or mm -hmm. siblings, whatever it is, and that that would be really just as social security for us was the great innovation of the 20th century, I would think of this paid ability to care for family members as one of the pillars of the, of the 21st. Sometimes the issues around this debate feel overwhelming. Where do you start? How can you break it down into change? It's always encouraging to hear from people who are doing something practical. Sophia Parker has her own distinguished record in policy thinking and is a former director of the think tank The Resolution Foundation. But since having three children of her own, she's been thinking about pragmatic solutions to social problems. She founded Little Village, a charity in South London which allows families to donate and swap baby clothes and equipment. So Little Village is a charity um, and we aim to basically bring the community back into raising our families. Um, we believe it takes a village to raise a child. Um, so our first project, which has launched in Tooting and we're just actually opening a second site in Camden, is basically it's a, a baby bank. It's like a food bank, but for baby clothes and toys and equipment. Um, all the items. You don't borrow babies. We don't borrow <laughs> babies, no. No, no, no. It's all the things that you might need when you first have a baby. Um, and it's all donated by a local community. The whole thing is funded by the local community. Um, it's run by volunteers and um, we aim to help uh, families in need in the local area. What we're doing has got something very powerful and care is actually at the heart of it. Love is one of our core values. Um, and what we're trying to do is say, we have this stuff. We have all of these um, clothes and toys and all mm -hmm. these things coming out of our ears and we can put them to good use. We don't have to send them to landfill. We don't have to give them away. We can give them to other families Tell me a bit about uh, technology, if it features at all in how you've 
organised little village? So um, we're actually, um, I'll be honest, we're very analogue at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, this particular project is um, is is very focused on uh, human interaction. And I guess um, this, this kind of takes me to the heart of a, a question I'd love to explore a bit with you, which is really how can we ensure that technology augments and emphasises the things that are important about care. So care is very visceral, right? You have to be there. Mm-hmm. You can't wipe someone's bottom. You can't stop them falling down the stairs. You can't give them a hug unless you're there yep. and actually physically present. Um, and I'm really, really interested in how technology can um, augment those relationships mm-hmm. um, uh, and, and, and those interactions rather than thinking about kind of automation and yes, transactions. Absolutely. Um, and I think, I think kind of framing it in that way yeah. is so important uh, when we're thinking about care. I completely agree with you and that I find care particularly interesting when you think about mm. uh, AI and machine mm. learning and yeah. robotics because, yeah. as you say, on the one hand, yeah. there is no way that I think we as human beings would want to... Um, downgrade the intimate care of an older person to a robot. It's kind of unimaginable in some Mm. ways. Mm. But in other ways, Mm. we know that robots perform better bits of minor surgery, that they have more effective completion rates of some small procedures. Mm. And navigating that course, Mm. I think, is going to be absolutely essential over the next 10 to 15 years. And it probably is a tightrope, right? It's going to be always a bit of one a bit of the other and and that that's that's the challenge is 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 to kind of not fall down on one side or the other we've definitely had lots of ideas about how technology could make life easier so for example one of the um things we give out are cots so one of the things we looked at is could you have a sort of real-time uh kind of app where someone who has a cot to give away keeps it at their house until we need it and then you know we have somewhere moving it from Mm -hmm. a to b and then it doesn't need to touch our storage room and if you uh, imagine sort of five to ten years hence mm. when I wish we could sit here and imagine mm. a world where people didn't need to rely on your kinds of mm, service, absolutely. but I fear it's going to get worse, not mm. better, unfortunately. Mm. You know, do you imagine more uh, technology being present in, yeah. in, the, in the picture? Yeah, so one of the barriers for um, some of the mums we're helping to come and volunteer or, you know, work work with little village is childcare yes so is there a is there an app which you could actually share that childcare need yeah. between all the volunteers someone says yeah i i'm i'm free for 2 hours i can come in and yes. help look after the children while you volunteer and there's a kind of exchange system almost so um, we were we were laughing about borrowing babies but actually, but actually maybe like, we will <laughs> you know, you know yeah. the, um, the yeah. uh, website borrow my doggy oh, yeah. and yeah. i don't mean to draw a very <laughs> crass comparison but i've always thought oh. we could do a better job at sharing some yeah. of the caring things we do. Well, yeah, no, I think it's really interesting. And in fact, one of um, I, I, I've been involved in a piece of work with the New Economics Foundation, yes. looking at childcare co-ops. And just to explain what you mean by childcare. So, a childcare co-op. Um, lots of people, when they think about uh, taking their kids to nursery, imagine taking. You know, they 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 leave home, they walk into the nursery, and they hand over this child to um, some professionals, and then they go off to work or whatever it is they want to do. In a childcare co-op. Um, the families actually, the parents actually um, are involved not only in the, the kind of management and governance of that nursery, but they're also involved in delivering the care that that nursery provides. Mm-hmm. So there are a few examples um, in the UK, many more if you look to America or Canada or New Zealand, where it's actually co-ops are about 12% of the market. And I think what's really interesting about them, they, they speak to a desire, which mm-hmm. you can see in the research, that people want to spend more time um, with their children. Um, but they also um, can be very powerful 
places for parents to grow in confidence as parents. And the beauty is, of course, it makes it more affordable, Mm -hmm. 50% less in some cases than normal nurseries. Um, And it enables parents to... To, to be connected, to actually have those interactions yeah. with their children as well as working. So it's about families sharing that. that Do you that think that's a model that might children. work in the workplace? So could you imagine, I could imagine a corporate Absolutely. setting up something yeah. like that so that yeah. you could go in during your day when you didn't have a meeting or in your lunch mm-hmm. hour and be yeah. more present? Yeah, I think it would be such a powerful model there. Um, and, you know, there are lots of employers and first directors always yes. cited as, you know, someone who had a great crush on site. But imagine if, if you could. have something very clever with how your pay worked or, um, you know, maybe you would still get paid for some of the contribution you made when you were working in the co-op um, or something. I don't know. There's lots of interesting things you could do. So, yeah, that's that model is one of the areas where I think that it's ripe for exploration. So I think you'll agree you get a strong sense from Sophia of the potential, but also the problems of trying to address some of these important issues around care. But I want to know how tech fits into this. Amelia Abreu has been thinking about it. She's a design researcher and writer based in Portland, Oregon, and teaches design research skills with her business, UX Night School. You've talked in the past about how you think that because of the the makeup of the tech sector that many issues get put aside. So, for example, you know, 4% of the tech industry, software engineers are women, so therefore issues that predominantly maybe women face get get sidelined. Do you think that's the issue here? Is that what's holding up better solutions, more solutions, or other other reasons? It's a sort of chicken and the egg problem. Uh, a lot of diversity discussion in the tech industry focuses on what's called the pipeline, getting young women to major in in computer science and that sort of thing. But there's been some counter argument to that, that, and it's summarized in this sort of pithy expression, the pipeline leads to a sewage dump. Uh, And it's the, you know, what's the culture within, within tech? I personally have found that that was, that's been a larger problem. What do you mean by the culture? Like any other culture, subculture, there's certain ideals that we hold hold up. And there's definitely an ideal uh, within the tech industry of the 10x engineer, the engineer who can get 10 times as much done as the regular old engineer. And that's very, um, it pushes away any ideas of vulnerability of differing perspectives like well maybe if this is hard for me i can point out what's strange about it you know what's what there's a sort of confirmation bias in in tech leadership well it's like we've made it this far we're the best our opinions matter more than anyone else and i think that if we're to engage with care critically especially in relation to technology we need to make visible and maybe quantify the amount of care that we receive and the amount of care that we give. You know, I talk about, I, I've given this talk several times about ethics of care and technology. And this is very funny. Every single time a white male engineering manager comes up to me afterwards and he says geez you know i really enjoyed your talk and i myself i really struggle with taking care of people because when they made me a manager i realized i had to deal with other people's problems 
we don't give folks a lot of on-ramps to think critically about care or even to think critically about how hard it is to take care of other people. Do you see a new wave of kind of startups emerging that come from a different place? Yeah. The, the learning space, I think, is a part of the tech industry that is desperately trying to figure out this question, because how can you make folks learn if they're not being cared for? You know, a local company here in Portland called Treehouse, which is a sort of a tutorial site, you can learn how to learn new tech frameworks. They have some very interesting policies that actually encourage their employees to work less. They work four day weeks and they've implemented some very interesting policies that push back on the work workaholism that seems to be set at odds with caregiving responsibility. And when you talk about caregiving responsibility, do you specifically mean in any particular direction? Do you always think of it about, you know, within a family or do you think of it more broadly in a community or or wider even? What does care mean to you? I think that there's a, uh, you know, taking care of oneself, you know, is a place where one can be critical, taking care of one's community, doing things like attending town hall meetings, like that's an act of care. Shoveling once, shoveling your sidewalk when you're when there's been a snowstorm, that's an act of care. I personally find that it's best to think about care on the broadest scale possible. So, how did you uh, put care at the heart of your own business, UX Night School? In starting a learning and teaching business, care is a very is a fundamental thing. As the single mother of a young child, I have to arrange for care when if I am going to be out at night. And I, you know, you know, want to think about how do we offer professional development for folks who do have caregiving responsibilities? Is it hard when you start something to put those values at the core of it? Oh, definitely. And it's, you know, this is something that's uh, hard with all teams. You know, once I, when I teach, you know, how do you do user-centered design? I always say, use a calendar, Figure out when the school holidays are, because those are the days that parents will not be around the office. <laughs> like, don't schedule your meetings then. And would you agree that, that one of the issues in the kind of moving to a different way of thinking about care in its broader sense is trying to put some kind of economic value on it or making it feel a bit more part of a country's GDP? How much does economics feature in how you think about things? I think that economics is huge. You know, I'm a design researcher, so I go into a lot of uh, just explain. Go into a lot just of, explain what exactly that means. I work with I work with teams building technology to better understand who is going to use it and what their constraints are and what the problems actually are that they're solving with technology. And as a result, I've been you know. I've worked with truck drivers, I've worked with accountants, I've worked with folks with folks in medical settings. When you're building technology, when you're trying to build a tech product, it's like, okay, find a sector that needs a technological solution. And caregiving is a huge it's a huge economic force. There's just the labor needed to take care of the US, US's aging population and aging populations around the world is it's a huge labor force and it's only growing.
So for me, the podcast has definitely shown the varied nature of care, even how people use it and its meaning has been different from for different people that we've talked to. But it's also reinforced how this is an urgent debate that it's important that we have and we move on. But if I had to take three things from the people I talked to, I think I'd take the following. Firstly, that we really are at the beginning of understanding. Care isn't even economically valued, and I don't believe we yet place enough social and moral importance on it. We have to think about different ways of measuring care, think about its true worth to society if we're going to move the debate on. And that's really complicated and difficult, especially when you're talking about things as varied as looking after older relations, or very young children, or even as Amelia talked about, sweeping the streets or moving snow from the pavements. But secondly, and importantly, I think everyone we spoke to felt optimistic that the trajectory was positive and that if we have this conversation again in 10 years' time, we really will have rethought care in different and interesting ways. So for an optimistic person like me, that is reassuring. But looking at technology specifically, it brings me to my final takeaway. And that is really that the internet and those related technologies can, of course, help us address these mammoth challenges, but we have to put good design thinking and diverse design thinking at the heart of when we do so. People who are at the coalface doing the real care have to be involved in the design of the solutions, as do the people being cared for as much as possible. So much potential could be used if we harness technology smartly, but we don't always get these things right, and starting from that premise is very important. Thanks for listening to our new podcast network. If you've got any thoughts on this episode, please tweet us at dot everyone UK. You can find more episodes and what dot everyone is working on at dot everyone dot org dot UK.